The Bok Deer Podcast, June 2021. A change of direction. The idea has been in this series of podcasts to have a kind of three-act structure for each, taking in the views from Germany, Russia and America in the 20th century from the perspective of a hundred years on. I had hoped, when starting out 18 months ago, to present historical events episodically on a monthly basis. But history cannot be trifled with in this way. In the view from America last month, looking for something to highlight, as I have been doing all this while, I picked up on a headline in the New York Times, French Criticise London Plan, a clear reference to the Allied Schedule of Payments Conference in London in 1921, aimed at finally settling German reparation payments. The agreement of the 5th of May that year was printed in the London Times the day after. It is an essential primary historical source that I should have made better use of by comparing the figures with GDP. Instead, I ran away from it, fearful of entering and not getting out of the Bermuda Triangle of what might have been German GDP for the crisis years of 1919, 20 and 21. By contrast, in what would have been the view from Russia this month, I looked at some news copy under the headline Anti-Bolsheviki Take Omsk from the New York Times of the 6th of June 1921. I then wanted to go into the stories, implicit in references to nationalities and places, and afterwards try to string them together as an event for present-day consumption. How could I know, however, if everything mentioned in the copy did add up to an event at the time, rather than a fantasy about it 100 years later? Perhaps Wikipedia could help. I next searched for further context on this website, but in the process it soon became clear that there are at least two problems with my approach. I can illustrate the first just by quoting the non-news from the very article itself. Tokyo, June 4th, Associated Press. Omsk has been captured by anti-Bolshevist forces and the Bolsheviki are withdrawing toward Tobolsk, according to semi-official reports from Siberia. Omsk is in western Siberia, about 2,800 miles from Vladivostok. Other dispatches received here tell of the revolutionary movement in Ekaterinburg on the Asiatic side of the Ural Mountains, while advices from Japanese sources report that an insurrection which broke out recently in Moscow was suppressed with difficulty with the assistance of communist sailors from Petrograd. The situation in Moscow is described as still serious. These dispatches were simply updates for the New York Times readership following events on a daily basis at the time. Each is far too conjectural as an advice or word of hearsay to warrant much attention in hindsight. Nothing mentioned in the first paragraph could be traced through Wikipedia. More helpfully, the second paragraph mentions a revolutionary movement in Ekaterinburg and an insurrection in Moscow, but likewise both events demand more extensive research. Wikipedia is not the best resource for this, as we already know that communism prevailed and that its ideology was Marxist-Leninism. So in the bigger picture, this pair of events amounts to very little of importance given the broad sweep I've been intent on taking in these podcasts. 
However, if I were writing a more academic history of resistance to the Bolsheviki prior to the death of Lenin in 1924, I would have to look into both these incidents and not just stop at the advices or informant hearsay reported in the New York Times, but examine what was reported, if anything, in the Russian press or written down in personal diaries in order to find names, places and first-hand witness. I might also want to see if there are any online or catalogue documents available on request from the relevant archives in Russia, starting with the National Library in Moscow. This is the job of a full-time historian, who, in pursuit of all these things, let's habitually call them primary sources, will have either an advance from a publisher, an academic fellowship, or both. This is not my day job. However, I want to work with primary sources as much as I can. I had not completely given up on Wikipedia. Coming back to the article, the next paragraph, the third, but not the last, runs as follows. The latest advices from Vladivostok declare that the Kapel army prevented General Semyonov, the anti-Bolshevist leader, from landing there. Guards were placed on the docks, and simultaneously several members of Semyonov's self-styled cabinet were placed under arrest. These followers of Semyonov had proceeded to Vladivostok from Harbin to support the cause of which he was to be the head. Wikipedia made for a decent introduction as to who Kapel was. I guess that Semyonov, spelt with two Fs, was the Ataman general Grigory Semyonov, elsewhere spelt with one V. Wikipedia confirmed this. Then there was Vladivostok, a place I have visited on a number of occasions and its connection with Harbin in northern Manchuria. I used Wikipedia to remind myself that this was the last stretch of the Trans-Siberian Railway eastwards and safe passage for Russians fleeing the destruction of the Civil War. So there is plenty to go on here, but now we find the second of the two problems mentioned at the outset. Unlike the Wikipedia follow-up of the first two paragraphs, the results emerging from a search of the third one offers a ready-made narrative. We can trust Wikipedia with the facts, but the text is someone else's narrative. The danger is that I might simply end up paraphrasing the relevant texts from this website. And in this month's view from Russia, I have done that more than I would care to admit. I have had to do the honest thing and abandon the manuscript this month. There is no such temptation when following up on advices in the first two paragraphs, because if there is a story, a narrative to be had, it will probably come from any available archival material. Thus, despite seemingly offering the inquirer nothing at all, initially such advices should spur on the dedicated researcher to go further as described a moment ago. Newspaper correspondence like this usefully begs questions, as does Wikipedia. It is important not to see disambiguation in this online resource as a dead end. 
Take the anti-Bolshevism mentioned in the headline of the article. I wanted to know if it, in every case, was something aligned to the white movement. The Wikipedia search using the term invited me to disambiguate along seven different pathways. I took the one under anti-Leninism and found the section opposition from non-Marxists pushing me further along the way. Mention of SRs or socialist revolutionaries who despised the Dvoryansva or Russian nobility as much as the Reds did. In this way, SRs were not in the least white. Although they carried an all-consuming enmity for the Reds as well, this did not somehow make them white either. Just as an aside, I wouldn't describe socialist revolutionaries as non-Marxist. To reiterate, original research along a pathway in some places digital, in others non-digital, is a full-time job, likely to leave time for little else. For example, Alexander Rabinovich's two groundbreaking books, The Bolsheviks Come to Power and The Bolsheviks in Power, The First Year of Soviet Rule in Petrograd, both from Indiana University Press, the latter 2008. They together amount to a lifetime's work for this author. Yet, Wikipedia is indispensable as a starting point to find primary sources with which to work. And for someone like me with limited time available, it is often a shortcut to a seminal document that deserves rereading. For example, Mary Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of Women, or Marx and Engels' Communist Manifesto. Relatively more recent examples might be the Paris Peace Treaty. This warrants another look with Europe once again divided economically, as does the Good Friday Agreement, which set the scene for the end of sectarian violence in Northern Ireland in 1998. These documents cannot be collated as episodes to make some narrative sweep of history. The word history, of course, has no substance. It's just the label on the bottle, as it were, for a certain discipline. Overindulging from the bottle, this bottle, can make it all too easy for the historian to get lost in abstraction. Historical documents themselves, rather than Wikipedia commentaries on them, however brilliant, have to be read closely with a view to understanding the human agency that inspired them in the first place and the circumstances or structures that gave form to their existence generically. The historian should avoid any over-reliance on secondary sources and not yield to the temptation of lacquering some kind of narrative sheen over the material whenever the primary source does not have enough about it to unfold as a story. A document-first approach will come at the expense of a kind of episodic rhythm, but it will amount to a more honest way of relaying historical events in the time available to me. There is something called real-time history that has become rather faddish in recent years. The 100th anniversary of the start of the First World War in 2014 gave rise to Facebook groups, Twitter feeds and YouTube channels recounting the war episodically on a week-by-week -week basis, restricting information as necessary as if to create a cliffhanger for the next post or episode. Given the global nature of that conflict, ever graphically eventful, there was usually a piece of pathé newsreel at hand to illustrate climatically some aspect of the retelling of this war. 
Some of this digitally restored and colorized footage is remarkable and indispensable to historians. The remastering has revealed details lost for generations and the colorization, rather than merely trying to recreate the hues that would have been noticed by the naked eye at the time, can be used to highlight the very detail that would not be otherwise noticed. However, old newsreel footage, when put together end-to-end, -end, amounts only to a narrative of what could or couldn't be filmed, either in terms of the technical limitations of the primitive camera apparatus itself, or as a commentary on what was or was not censored by governments and military high commands at the time. This footage is not in its entirety a narrative of the Great War per se. Nevertheless, I will be using some of this footage as well as other photographic material selectively in the companion channel to this podcast, The Buck Deer Corner. It makes for the easiest search on YouTube. This podcast will be renamed History Reread in due course. I hope you and I will eventually get round to calling it informally the Three R's Podcast, 